Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones to Electric Bookaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Very special episode this week. A few weeks ago, I asked for feedback, and one of the constant themes was that y'all like medievalists. And I thought, well, who would be like the best? Who's like the best, most well-known medievalist in the world who's written two books on Game of Thrones, who teaches at Oxford University? That's Caroline Larrington. And so I emailed Caroline, and she said, of course, I'd love to do it. Moreover, she is super excited about this particular chapter. I gave her a few options, and she was keen to cover Danny's third POV chapter. This is where Danny really sort of asserts herself as a Khaleesi for the first time. So it's a medievalist double dip this week, because we have Caroline Larrington, and of course, we have our favorite medievalist, Jana Matthews. Steve and I will be talking about And Now His Watch Has Ended. Without further ado, here is Jana Matthews. Okay, this is from Rebecca. I don't know if you've ever talked about heraldry beyond a quick mention, but I appreciate knowing more about the heraldic system, history, or symbolism. Yeah, I mean, heraldry pops up in such a key part of Game of Thrones. And even in the opening sequence, oftentimes what's happening is we've got the plot line of each season is being played out in the sword and what's going on. And so you have the stag that's fighting the other things. And so um, Game of Thrones like taps into heraldic imagery in culture in such really fascinating ways. Um, So heraldry really started, uh, there's evidence of it in Greek and Roman times, of course, but within the Middle Ages, it was it first started a practical utilitarian purpose in the sense that when you're in battle and things are chaotic and crazy and everyone is dressed up in their armor, um, everyone looks the same. And so it's it's really hard to tell like who's fighting for who. And you ha- and so it's, it's kind of like a sports team. It's the same reason why we wear sports jerseys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, sure. right. And like, I, I, you think about you've ever watched, um, you know, you know, when you go to like, AYSO soccer games and there's two colors and you've got like blue and light blue and they all are like dark blue and purple and they both look the same on the field from the sun and you're like wait I don't know who's who yeah Um, so it's it's kind of the same 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 kind of thing going on here and and so that's what that's how it started And, and this is also an illiterate based society and so you know having written words on the front of saying like you know King John, right, doesn't mean as much as having a, a, a sort of a physical symbol or um, an image that portrays or that represents a, a particular mm. um, organization. So 
then over time, uh, it evolved to mean more or to be reflect more about family lineage and, and patrimony and, and patrilineage. And so what you start seeing are, are kind of complex shields that in coat of arms that represent the family. And then I also tell stories of the history of the family themselves. And so you might have uh, you know, a family that's long been associated with a stag or with a dragon. And, um, and many times those individual um, images are sort of deeply rooted in mythology. So if you've got a dragon, it's often related to St. George, you know, who was famously fought and defeated the dragon or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as families intermarry, and then and they when they form alliances, shields also and coat of arms also tell the story of that of the intermarriage, and so they become political statements as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Caroline Larrington is professor of medieval European literature at Oxford University. She is a delight to talk to. Her books are Winter is Coming and All Men Must Die. You can buy them both through Bloomsbury or at Amazon or wherever you buy your local books. Um, if you're a Game of Thrones fan, you got to own these. You got to own these. Here is Caroline Larrington. Dr. Larrington, we are excited to have you on Electric Bookaloo. And I think that a lot of our listeners will already recognize you because I've been reading some of your book uh, through the podcast, Winter is Coming. Uh, but I don't know a whole lot about All Men Must Die, so I'm wondering if you might tell us a little bit about that project. Okay, well, All Men Must Die just came out in January of this year, in 2021, and it's a follow-up book I decided to write after Winter is Coming because Winter is Coming was left with all kinds of unfinished business because uh-huh. it was just the end of season five. Sure. Um, I was never, of course, under the illusion that by the time I finished this book, we would see any more of A Song of Ice and Fire by that stage, though right. you, know, you can <laughs> right. always hope. But I thought once the TV show had completed and we had a whole story, it would be interesting to kind of check some of the things I thought in winter is coming were quite likely to happen and just trace through the story arcs of the characters and talk Mm -hmm. about the way those big themes about family about passions feelings about power politics and about the ways in which the the show changed its its ways of dealing with questions like gender questions of racial Mm -hmm. identity Mm ability and disability and and sexuality as well. So I thought there was a whole lot of really interesting stuff around the story and the characters to discuss in All Men Must Die. And that was my aim in that book. Excellent. And both books are through Bloomsbury, right? Yeah, Bloomsbury now publishes both of them. Yeah, wonderful. That's great. And of course, you know, I'm sure that fans can find this wherever they buy books, um, but you know it's always nice to actually go to the publisher's website. 
you know, you can buy books through the publisher's website. Yeah, and they very often have a, a decent discount too. Yeah, so it's well worth right. having a look. So we are covering Danny's third point of view chapter. And what I noticed initially was that the time frame of the chapter seems pretty typical for a Martin chapter so far. You know, it's set in a particular scene. But by the end of the chapter, I realize that this is framed over months. You know, this mm. is this chapter covers a lot of ground, both literally and metaphorically, <laughs> yes. right? A lot of Dothraki Sea, yes. Yes. Yeah, because um, what we, where we left Annie at the end of Daenerys 2 was on her wedding night, wasn't it? And that, that yes. first sexual encounter with Drogo. And we're a couple of weeks down the road when we come back to her and she's still feeling kind of uncomfortable and kind of unhappy at the, the beginning. The riding is really taking its toll. Right. Um, she's, she's obviously picking up quite a bit of the language now and she's beginning to understand how Dothraki society works. And it's interesting too, I think, to see how she's getting increasingly close to Jorah and then we see at the beginning of the chapter that she she already is relying on him quite a bit. And so over the course of the chapter, we go from a kind of crucial moment where she has the first of those dreams about the dragons and she feels that she can actually bear both the kind of sometimes unsatisfactory sex she's having with Drogo and the pain of the riding. Things are starting to heal. And then over... A couple more weeks, you feel her beginning to kind of grow into the beginnings of her power. And then by the end of the chapter, there we are. We know that she's she's pregnant. Yeah. So quite a lot goes on in that time frame. You're absolutely, absolutely right. Let me do a quick synopsis. Daenerys Targaryen is horseback, traveling with her Kalisar across the Dothraki Sea. She admires the vast grasslands, enjoys the warm sun on her face, learns bits and pieces of Dothraki culture from Jorah Mormont, and does her best to avoid her asshole brother. She reflects on how miserable she was for weeks after her wedding. Indeed, her life was so painful and exhausting that she considered the alternative of death as an option. Mm. But she reflects on her reoccurring dragon dream and how she embraced the fire and became fierce. She rides on. She commands the horde to remain behind as she walks alone in the tall grass and soaks in the natural beauty but her solitude is interrupted by an angry Viserys. He attempts to demonstrate his superiority by insulting and assaulting Danny, but she pushes back. Then Jogo snaps a whip and wraps it around her brother's neck. Viserys is cowed, and Jorah demonstrates his allegiance to Danny over and against the would-be king of Westeros. Danny returns to the Kalsar to her tent, where she calls for a bath. She talks over dragon lore with Jiqui, Eerie, and Doria. And after seeking Doria's advice, she waits for Drogo to return. They make love outside the tent. Several weeks later, Jiqui sees that a 14-year-old Danny is pregnant. So, Caroline Larrington, would you like to talk about it? Plot point, character, a theme, or shall we just climb the ladder of chaos? Let's just climb the ladder of chaos. I we? love just the ladder of, of chaos. <laughs> wade straight in there and and talk about what's happening throughout the episode. Uh, yes. So at one point in this chapter, Danny tells 
Jorah, I am no child. And I kind of believe it. You know, it's like, yeah, she's been through a lot, man. She's grown up a lot. This dragon dream is really arresting. And then I, it, th- that last line of the chapter was really jarring. It's like, oh, this is her 14th birthday that she's pregnant? Like, th- to me, mm. that, that reminded me, oh, no. Like, I, I was almost fooled. She is still a child. Yeah, and she is what I think we would understand and nowadays as a child. In in medieval times, um, you could easily be married by the age that, that Daenerys is. But I think what you see over the, the course of the chapter is her losing that childlike innocence that she had yeah. maybe right back in the first chapter where she was still accepting everything Viserys told her. Uh, though even in chapter one, when Illyrio Mopatis says, oh, you know, over there in Westeros, they just do nothing else but pray for the return of Viserys. <laughs> and then Danny is going, hmm, I wonder if that's entirely true. But hey, you know, never mind. Yeah. But you can really see how she's she's noticing all kinds of things in her environment. And partly it's a question of adaptation and getting used to being among the Dothraki, learning the language, mm-hmm. eating the food, getting used to the riding, and just enjoying being out of that kind of hand-to-mouth existence that she and Viserys had had before they fetched right. up in Pentos and, and went to stay, still, you know, on Illyrio's charity, as it were. And so you can see, I think, kind of not really spoken in the chapter. You don't have her sitting down and saying, so, Jorah, tell me what it's really like in Westeros. But you can see, I think, the really crucial conversation for for what's going to come is when Jorah says to her, do you think Viserys would be a good king? Mm. And you can kind of see the scales falling from her eyes, but they were they were sliding off anyway. I do think that there's a moment, however, of cognitive dissonance there because yeah. when when Jorah says something like you know this guy is he's a snake he's not a king he's a snake you know she kind of has this moment where she's like oh no everything I ever believed is wrong mm. and this is the true for people in adolescence in in a lot of different cultures but they can really smell authenticity and I think Danny smells it. I think she's like, this is the first guy who's ever told me the truth about my brother. But it th- I think it is difficult for her at that moment to realize I've been living a lie my whole life. Yeah, I don't think she's she's taken on board the kind of crumbling of the entire fantasy structure of of uh, do the Targaryens really have any rights to the Iron Throne? Is <laughs> okay. there any kind of future that there's no, she's yeah, not that, putting that aside much. at this point, but there's, it's, I think she's seeing a lot about leadership. Um, uh-huh. Just seeing the way that already, you know, that Carl Drogo has absolute effortless command of his Khalasar and what yeah. he says goes. And she sees what real power and real respect looks like. And she can look across. I mean, it's not really, I think, spelled out very clearly in the chapter, but she can kind of look across to Viserys riding not very well, wearing the wrong clothes, moaning all the time. With his borrowed sword, right? Yeah, and thinking, 
and she thinks, yeah, I kind of wish he wasn't here because, oh, absolutely. He's, yeah, he's he's just screwing all of this up for me. I would be getting into this much more if I didn't have Viserys. Mm-hmm. You can really feel that kind of split loyalty with the yeah. the only family she has in the world, the person she's been with all the time, the person that she thought she was going to marry up until the point that Drogo showed up. Exactly. He's been filling so many roles. He's like the would-be king. He's her surrogate father. He's her older brother and potential um, husband, right? So, And it's not like Illyrio Mopathis is going to give her like a good, strong example of moral fortitude. She, Everything she knows about the world is sort of through this Viserys filter, and it's a horribly distorted filter. That's for sure. I, I think there's a wonderful moment when I was rereading it last night when you have Viserys sprawling on the ground with um, <laughs> Joko's whip around his neck and he just can't move. And there's that kind of conversation going on. So, Shall I kill him? I'll kind of, whoa, no, no. Well, um, well, you know, Joko says that at least he should lose an ear. And I was kind of thinking, yeah, that could be a real growth fair. point for, for Viserys. <laughs> you know, if he loses an ear now, he could, that could save him a lot of grief down the road. But obviously you don't tell someone to chop your brother's ear off on, on kind of a whim. But that's a, a real moment, too, yeah. where she, she thinks he doesn't have the power She anymore. And I think she's a little bit surprised about how much power she has. Because yeah. in that moment, I think she realizes, or at least she has to realize, oh, I actually can choose to have him done away with right now. My whole life, he's had all of the power, and now I have all the power. That's got to be something that messes with your head, you know? Yeah, I think it's a real, it's it's not just, you know, the balance is tipping. It's a real heel turn, if you like, yeah. at that moment. And because we've already seen through her eyes the way that her view of Viserys has been changing during the, those weeks of riding across the Dothraki Sea. And she can see, too, the contempt that the Dothraki have for him for all kinds of reasons. And I think it's... It's a moment, too, where she's also looking at Jorah, who's there, isn't he? And you can imagine very well Jorah's kind of, okay, this is the guy who thinks he's going to be the next king of Westeros. Um, And yes, I've sworn to follow him, but actually... And then there's that moment of choice for Jorah, too. Yeah, that's right. When Viserys is saying, well, you know, punish her, hurt her, kill her. Not kill her, but punish her, hurt her. And Jorah's who we don't know very much about, of course, at this stage, do we? We know that he, he's he been exiled for selling the poachers into slavery. But we well, the don't one really thing know we know about him... Yeah, I think the one thing we know about him is that he doesn't follow easily. I mean, mm. he's not that interested in Ned's authority. He's, you know, he, he's not that interested in his 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 father's honor. He swears his allegiance to Viserys and then you know, recants as soon as he finds out what Viserys really is. I I guess you could say he's somewhat fickle or maybe he is falling in love with Danny or see something in Danny and has decided this is the person to whom I owe my real allegiance. I'm not sure what to do with his actions at this point, but they could be read as fickle. 
Yeah, well, we don't. I mean, we just don't know enough about him, do we? Because yeah. we can we can guess that what he might be interested in as a Westerosi exile is who can get me back to Westeros, who can get me home. Yeah, and that's true. That makes a lot of sense. To there, are, there's no other game in town apart from yeah. going back to Westeros, which he can't do. So he may as well pledge himself to Viserys. But he sees very clearly that Viserys is not a winner. And I think he can see that Daenerys is. And, of course, we have to remember that he's also spying or been charged with spying on on the the brother and sister, I guess, is it via Varys, I think, but ultimately for for Robert Baratheon, who's getting all this fed back to him on the other side of the narrow sea. Um, But you can see, I think, there's a kind of heart and head moment there Mm. for for Jor, and if it's not the beginning of his feelings for Daenerys, then it's a step along that path at yeah. least. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about Danny coming into her power. I think this is a very important transition chapter for her, and we've talked a little bit about how she's realized that her brother really has no power. But I, I, I'd like to hear you say more a little bit about her sort of realizing who she is. Well, I think one of the the key signifiers, if we can we can call it that, in this early part of the book, is that moment back in um, on the wedding day when she's given her horse her her beautiful silver filly, right. yeah. and she sees the filly as the gift that Drogo especially picked out for her, but also as a kind of freedom. Yeah. That she can get on that horse and she can go. And she can go and if she can get away from the horde, she can just tell them to stay behind. She can ride off on the horse down into the, the beauties of the, the landscape mm. and be by herself until the, the wretched sniveling Viserys turns up. <laughs> and and as you say, kind of ruins that moment of, of sheer enjoyment of the sun and yeah. the natural environment and yeah. the yeah, I I can live, I can thrive even in this environment. And so she's feeling her place among the Dothraki. And then over the course of the chapter, uh, like we said, she sees that she is the Khaleesi. And when she gives an order, people will follow it. And that means if she wants Viserys to be killed, yeah. they will do that. The only person who has real authority over her is Drogo. And the others can say, well, you know, the Dothraki do not do this. And you have that little kind of comedy um, chorus of Eerie and Jiki just agreeing all the time. You know, no, it is known. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. This is this is not how we do things. <laughs> this is what is the case. Yeah, you know, this, this is not is debatable. <laughs> yeah, we all know that the, the what the sun and the moon are, and they're certainly not dragons or dragon eggs, whatever Doria thinks. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I always love the way that they chime in, saying, "Yeah, no, this is known. This is in 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 our Dothraki world picture. It is known. You don't have to argue about that." Yeah, yeah. I'm going to read this section. This is her dream sequence, and I think this is something. I think this tells us something about her. Um, day followed day, and night followed night, until Danny knew she could not endure a moment longer. She would kill herself rather than go on. She decided one night. Yet when she slept that night, she dreamt the dragon dream again. 
Viserys was not in the dream this time. There was only her and the dragon. Its scales were black as night, wet and slick with blood. Her blood, Danny sensed. Its eyes were pools of molten magma, and when it opened its mouth, the flame came roaring out like a hot jet. She could hear it, singing to her. She opened her arms to the fire, embraced it, let it swallow her whole, let it cleanse her and temper her, and scour her clean. She could feel her flesh sear and blacken and slough away. She could feel her blood boil and turn to steam, and yet there was no pain. She felt strong and new and fierce. I love that passage for mm. a number of reasons. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of sort of language of ritual purity in the passage, which is interesting because it's not, this is not Dothraki, this is not a Dothraki-informed dream, I think. I think this no, no, really this is, taps this is going into, back to Valyria, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, this is very much a Valyrian uh, mythology that she's experiencing in her, in her dream. And Viserys isn't there, Viserys is gone, and she is really kind of coming into a sense of her own, I don't know, dragonhood, I suppose. And But we just don't know at this point, do we? We got this strange sense of whenever she touches those dragon eggs that she got as her wedding present mm. from Illyrio, they're warm. And she's saying, well, you know, it's the sun. They've just got heated up mm. while they're traveling. But we sense that something is hatching there or could right. hatch. And so there's, there's something growing under the surface. And in that dream sequence that you just read out there, it's obviously a kind of foreshadowing of Drogon. And the blood that he's slick with is, I guess, kind of the blood of her motherhood of him. It's as if she does give birth to him out of her body rather than hatching him in the fire. Yeah. And so that whole dream is kind of anticipating that extraordinary final sequence when she is in the fire, the fire of, of Drogo's funeral pyre, and she and the eggs are in there together and that that hatching occurs and that's an anticipation of where the power absolutely shifts, not just in Danny's life at the end, but for the whole of the known world. Yes. It's changed by the fact now there are dragons again. Yes, and this she's is just a kind of ways, yeah, right? signal towards that, isn't it? It's a kind of anticipation of it. Yeah, so she's hatching I mean, the image of her sort of shell is melting away or something, and something true about her is emerging. But I'm so glad that you you brought it to a macro level because because of her emerging, the ripple effects are going to be felt all over the world. Yeah, and I like the uh, the two verbs I really picked up that you in that description you were reading was the idea of her being scoured. Yeah. Right. And which is all about being cleaned of your impurities and being made kind of sparkling and fresh, but also the word tempered too, because that's exactly what you do to a weapon, isn't it? You put it mm. in the fire to make it stronger. And and that's what the dream is is at some level doing for her in, in anticipation of what's going to happen in the following chapters, mm. that it's making her, it's, making her psychologically stronger. And so when she gets that moment of testing, when she 
she tempers, if you like, justice with mercy because she decides she's not going to even have Viserys's ears cropped off. Um, but she knows that she need never be afraid of him again. And I love that bit at that point too where she she makes the decision. Nobody suggests it to her. She says, take his horse. Yes. So he has to shamble along behind them. And then she has that very kind of typical... Um, of the young Danny kind of moment where, oh, have we lost him forever? Oh, God, was that an awful thing to do? What's going to happen to right, him? Right. And Jorah goes, no, he'll find us. And, yeah. Okay. Where, yeah, where else is he going to go? Yeah, and we're leaving a, a trail, you know, 100 <laughs> yards wide across the Dothraki Sea. Of course he's going to find us. What she does to him is almost, from a Dothraki point of view... Is really humiliating. I mean, he's he's humiliated himself, right? Uh, in, in so many ways, it's not like he's very esteemed in their eyes. But to make him walk behind without a horse, mm. it really—I mean, gosh, talk about being neutered. He's any power that he thought he might have is just stripped away, and it's at her doing. And and I do think that she has a sense of like I think at one point she even says, "Boy, he's gonna he's really gonna get me." <laughs> he's, he's... Yeah, but what can he do? And it really is emasculating. I think you're absolutely right there. But it's also I think from Viserys's point of view, it's the moment where he realizes that you know, his sweet sister, as he keeps calling her, has from his point of view, I guess he would think, "I've lost her." Yeah. I sold her to Drogo, and Drogo, well, sooner or later, when he's got to Vice Dothrak and the Dosh Kaleen have checked Daenerys over and mm. so on and so forth, somewhere down the line he'll give her, hand over the, the 10,000 Dothraki screamers that it will require to take Westeros back. Yeah, and he lacks, what, what he lacks, crucially, is even a modicum of self-awareness, because what he thinks is that, yes, I will give my sister to this horse lord, but I'm the king, I'm the rightful king of Westeros, so it doesn't really matter what kind of power she gains as Khaleesi, because I'm always going to be, you know, the alpha male in the room, because, of course, I'm going to sit the Iron Throne it's all a lie. I mean, it's it's not just a lie. It's a it's a horribly it's a fantasy, absurd it? thing to think. Yeah. It's it's a bizarre fantasy for him to nurture. But you can also see how for Viserys, it's the only thing that's keeping him going. Yeah, is that belief in his own entitlement. Well, and and uh, uh, Illyrio has kind of fed this. Yeah, and not really done him a very kind service by feeding this fantasy. And it kind of makes me wonder, like, what did Viserys really want out of this arrangement? It, again, something that we don't know nearly enough about. Well, yeah, I think Viserys had kind of nurtured in his his own, yeah, kind of slightly deranged mind um, the idea that pretty well, yeah, whatever Jorah and Illyrio himself and uh, Drogo were saying about the kind of ceremonial involved in this great Carl taking a wife of how she had to travel across the mm. the grasslands of the capital and be accepted by the Dosh Kalinans and, and so on, that she has to not just 
be his plaything, but but take on mm. this important social role in Dothraki society. Mm. All this is going to take time. And I think Viserys was kind of going, yeah, I hear you, but I'm not hearing you because surely, you know, once you've slept with my sister, then that's the job done. And now you can hand over the, the people I need to retake the throne. Yeah. But given how important all the way through the rest of the book series, thinking about the logistics of invasion, thinking about how you get all those Dothraki across the sea when they don't like ships, so they've got to get the horses over as well. Yeah, the poison water, right? The po- Yeah, and um, even mm. though, you know, Carl Drogo, when um, after the, the scene with the Stallion's heart, is going to make that great vow that this will happen. Um, you still can't see even if if on the day after the wedding, Drogo has said, okay, here are your 10,000 Dothraki. Guys, go with Viserys. How would that even work? Um, so well, and Viserys Danny notices always this. She's in... like, look, even if he had an army, he wouldn't know what to do with an army. Yeah, and the sword is, again, a kind of symbol of that, isn't it? He's got this yeah. borrowed sword. Yeah. And we keep being reminded that he's never used it on anyone. He just carries it about as yeah. symbolic. <laughs> And and that's kind of and and that comparison of Paul Viserys with a snake, when yes. he thinks of himself as a dragon, and a dragon, as we know from the dreams, is this mighty reptile that spurts this jet of of this column of flame out of its mm. mouth, and which I guess we know can fly. Um, yes, I think we know the dragons fly already. And the snake is what? Some little poisonous thing that creeps along on yeah, the right. ground. It's never going to get anywhere. It doesn't yeah. have the dragon quality, even though the snake and the dragon are, are symbolically related. It's earthbound and right. um, it, it doesn't have the power. I like, here's the other thing that I really love about this chapter is that there's so much work done to show us that Danny's coming into her own as a Khaleesi. Um, she's learning to love it. She's learning to love the smell of the land. She's learning to, she's even l- learning to, um, you know, hold her own with Drogo uh, eventually by the end of the chapter. But mm. when she dreams of home, it's crucial that she's thinking of King's Landing because there's this moment when Jorah says, she says, I, I would like to go home too. And Jorah says, look around you. Like you are home. You know, he doesn't say you are home, but that's implied. This is and yeah, this yes, is your home now. Mm-hmm. Yes, and she she refuses that in her mind, in her imagination. Her mind travels to like the Red Keep and a place that really she's never she doesn't have any waking memory of this place. But when she thinks about home, she doesn't think about her life as a Khaleesi. She's thinking about retaking the Iron Throne. Yeah, and I wonder whether if Drogo hadn't died, whether she would have been content hmm. to stay as a Revere Khaleesi and to have lived the, the life of the, the wife of the horse lord, or whether those dreams of power aren't always there, the dream of having to return home again. And that, for me, always remains a kind of open question as to hmm. whether had had Drogo not died. And I guess as a warrior lord, he was always going to die eventually because eventually with the kind of power structures in 
in Dothraki society, another Karl would have challenged him. And as he grew older, he would be less capable of fighting. Yeah. Or he could just sustain an injury like, like the one that he does in the end. And I think there's more of the dragon in Danny than she realizes, but that's also beginning to awaken, isn't it? But it's not a kind of delusional dragonness that we see with Viserys, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but we're seeing with the dreams and with the interaction between her and the eggs that the dragon power is beginning to kind of just breathe its first little puffs of, of smoke, if you like. Within yeah, her. there's something inside of her that is that wants to come out. It's very dragonish, um, rather than you know, as opposed to Viserys, who's kind of using that to build himself up, and it seems very superficial. Mm. Da- Danny, in her dream, the dragon is black, but has her blood over it. And then she becomes black through the the dragon's fire. So there's very much a reciprocity in that imagery, mm. and, and I and I really think it's supposed to foreshadow her becoming something like you know like a Targaryen queen. Yeah, and a, a dragon queen of yeah. the old kind in a way, and that that particular link with Drogon is already there, isn't it? That. It's the third. It's interesting, I think, that you have the three dragon eggs described very minutely when they're handed over in the mm-hmm. preceding chapter of Danny. And then each of them is growing warm, but it's the, the third out of a series of three, which in kind of folkloric terms is the really important one, that that's the, the dragon who's coloured haunt her dreams Hmm. and Hmm. that's the one that's going to be her her best and favorite child in the end let me ask you i feel like it would be it would be a shame if i didn't ask you this so you're a professor of medieval literature what in this chapter do you see that the rest of us mortals don't see (laughs) yeah that's a good question um I don't know that I see any particular parallels with anything hmm. in medieval literature that I can think of, because I think this um, kind of sudden realisation of the switch and the balance of power is quite a modern way of thinking. And it's, it's It's something, one of the things that I, I argue in both my books is is the way that Martin understands that if you're going to write modern fantasy epic, although you're drawing on all these medieval stereotypes, Mm -hmm. you have to have relatable heroes. And the days when you could have a single hero probably have gone because it just doesn't sustain the storyline enough. If you're going to build a huge world, just having one person like even if it were Jon Snow say making his way through the world doesn't give you a big enough scale and the modern epic fantasy reader wants to see women doing something which isn't just being a damsel in distress or being a a mother like you know wonderful as Caitlin is or um, being a kind of conventional um, princess who the hero gets Mm -hmm. to marry at the end they want to see a woman 
and preferably more than one woman um, who really has that heroic status as well. Mm. And I think the idea of the woman who gets a power, at this point she's getting a power kind of through who she's married to. Right. And that's something that's very recognisable as a pattern in in medieval literature that the, the princess becomes a queen and suddenly she has an authority which she didn't have when it was her father deciding huh. whether she could marry this suitor or that suitor. And so that that move into kind of queenship is important. Yeah. You know, it's not a it's not a perfect parallel, but there is a little bit of Hebrew mythology here that strikes me. There's a few different uh, female characters in, in the Hebrew Bible who marry into power and then have to figure out what to do with it. Like I'm thinking like, for instance, like Esther, someone mm. like that who she has to marry this foreigner and she and it's implied in the text, although it's not on the surface, that she has to figure out how to use her sexuality to really sort of advance her own cause. So I'm not sure if, you know, I, I think that the parallels probably end at that point. But there's a lot of mythological underpinning for this particular chapter. Um, and I and I bring that up also because of sort of those images of, of ritual purity and the fire purifying and things like that. It sounds to me very Near Eastern. Yeah, I like that parallel with Esther. I think that works very well. And in a... In a way, it cuts across a lot of other similar situations where the woman is married into another tribe or into another mm-hmm. people in order to secure some kind of political goal. Yeah. But yeah. the question then always remains, particularly once once the woman has a child, whose side is she on? Is she still on the side of her birth family? Mm-hmm. Is she still working for them mm. somehow? Or does she go over um, through the kind of growing ties of affection mm-hmm. with the husband who she That's neither right. knew nor liked before she met? Yeah. And particularly once she has a child who is half hers and half his, the 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 birth family is always kind of wondering, do we still have her love and her loyalty? Yeah. Or has she sold yes. out to the others? There's a little bit of that in the the brand the blessed mythology. I forget the name of brand. Oh, yeah, Bronwyn. Sister. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because when she gets, basically, she's just very mistreated by by the Irish, <laughs> and and so she sends word to her brother to come help her. Um, and th- that's an example of like, is she whose whose side is she really on here? You know. Yeah, um, because the the King of Ireland was was badly treated when he came to Wales on the wooing mission. Yeah, but yeah. we thought all of that had been sorted out. And then yeah. when he gets her back home, I mean, he's prepared to to forgive and forget. But the nobles are just kind of no, no, you know, that thing happened with the horses over there mm-hmm. in Wales. Is she really fit? <laughs> and and then exactly the point where the Irish and the Welsh at the end of it could have made peace. Um, and the same half brother, Ednissian, takes yeah. the child, the child who is, who has the Welsh mother and the Irish father, and just picks him up and thinks, "This is a terrible thing I'm going to do," and throws the child in the fire. Yeah. And then it all kicks off again. 
it's it's exactly that kind of you know the people who the woman is married into as well uh-huh. are saying to themselves you know is she is she really one of ours or is she still one of theirs and in the case of of Bronwyn she obviously never has really lost her her links to her Welsh family right um, partly because her husband is mistreating her so badly but Daenerys seems ready to embrace a Dothraki identity and it's yeah. interesting how long long after she's moved away from the Dothraki sea she still identifies as Khaleesi it's one of the mm-hmm. the most prized of her titles and I think I think yeah. that is pretty significant yeah, that's right so I just want to note some uh some introductions in this chapter we hear about the manticores of the Jade Sea for the first mm. time. We hear about the basilisks of Yi-T and the shadow binders and the blood mages of Ashai. And, of course, we meet uh, Jogo for the first time in this chapter. Um, and, of course, this is borrowing from uh, medieval mythology as well, right? So um, I'm sure that there are manticores and basilisks and bestiaries of that period. Absolutely, yes. Uh, but of course, um, the basilisk is, is older than that, and we find it in, in Pliny. So it goes right back to to early Greek kind of scientific classification yeah. of, of fabulous beasts. But yes, it does begin to sketch for us what lies beyond the Dothraki Sea, which we, we don't really know much about the geography of the Far East of Essos. Uh-huh. And so these are just kind of mystical names, but... Uh, on a reread of this chapter, we go, aha, shadow binders, aha. I don't even know what that is, but you know, shadow binders, it's pretty, maybe that's going to be important. Blood yeah. mages, okay. I don't know what the blood mages either, but it sounds very ominous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and as we're aware of the fact that going from the the free city of Pentos on the shores of the Narrow Sea. It was kind of recognizably, I guess, you know, like a Mediterranean city, but we're going further and further east mm-hmm. away from that kind of understandable culture of the West that we can grasp as Western readers ourselves. And the further east you go, the more unknown and more huh. fabulous and more exotic Yes, the things yeah. are, and at the same time, because of our, I guess, a, a modern understanding of Orientalism, we are, could be asking ourselves: Do actually any of those things exist exactly. in this world? Yeah, are the, or is this is, yes. just the the stuff that uh, that people make up in in the West to to frighten or to entertain mm-hmm. the children? That's right. That's right. Are right. we going to see a manticore? Right. Nah. So, um, a book. Versus show. Uh, so there's a few differences here in this chapter. Uh, the The dream isn't really there. The dream is quite important for the chapter. I'm not sure why they didn't do something like that in the show. But I mean, the show is telling something of the same story, just with maybe with a little bit less of the uh, the dragon imagery. The, yeah, I think they're yeah, saving up the visual impact of the dragon, aren't they? Yes, I think that that's probably it. It's like, um, it really is quite arresting, that final scene of season one, mm. where you've been hearing about dragons and 
you I think at that point in the story, so many people in the narrative disbelieve that dragons could ever exist or will ever exist again. Yeah, because we know that up to 100 years ago, there were dragons, but they shrunk yeah. to the size of dogs and they were kind of embarrassing. And there's a moment in this chapter where you have those competing discussions with um, the two Dothraki handmaidens yeah, and yeah, with yeah. Doria, that they, they have dragon stories. and the But the one thing that the, the serving women agreed on is that dragons died out ages ago mm, and, mm-hmm. and we're never going to see them again. It's right. a very kind of um, sense of the shortness of of human memory when it's orally produced in a way that although the dragons only died out a hundred years ago, it yeah. might as well be a thousand years ago for the girls. But Daenerys, because of her different kind of book learning education, goes, you yeah, know, actually it's not that long ago since my family were riding right. around on them. That's right. Um, and so she has a different sense of, of time. And the other thing that's kind of striking, I think, in the show is how how easily over in Westeros, you know, again, you know, there are the dragon skulls down there in the in the keep, and mm-hmm. people like Tyrion and Cersei, uh, uh, Tyrion in particular at this stage, is going well, grumpkins and snocks every time anybody <laughs> mentions anything right. supernatural, right. and. Uh, Though we know, or at least we think we know, that they're wrong to be dismissive of the supernatural because we saw what happened before that first title sequence. Right. And although we don't know what it was in episode one that we saw, we're beginning to get a sense of something stirring in the north. That's right. And for that to be balanced by something stirring in the east is, yeah. is a beautiful kind of polarization of those ice and fire themes yeah and even though Tyrion does sort of mock the superstitions of snarks and grumpkins he's fascinated with dragons he's reading you know he's reading a book about the uses of dragon bone and whatnot so the one thing that Tyrion does believe is dragons so i mean the the as a reader it's it's kind of brilliant it's kind of amazing this little trick that that Martin Pools, where dragons are talked about over and over and over again. And it's a fantasy story, so we should expect that there's going to be dragons. But by the time we get to the end of the book, wow, there's dragons. It really is thrilling. Yeah, and I think it's one of the things that I think is such a coup in Martin's approach to all of this is that, in a way, um, the book is is an immersion fantasy in that it's Mm. set in a completely different world where the fantastic can happen. But yet it has these hallmarks of the intrusion fantasy because you have what has been established as a kind of normal everyday where the supernatural has vanished, where um, the others are just the stuff of old man's stories, where the dragons have died out, where... People are getting on with power politics, with marrying, with having children, with trading across the narrow sea, with with absolutely recognisable human concerns. Yeah. And then there's that uncanny bit at the beginning. Yeah, of course. But then we don't hear anything much about it. Then we have a bit of kind of weird undead stuff going on at the wall. And people talking about this lost fantasy supernatural 
but there's no evidence at all for it. And then suddenly, as as um, as somebody has said, it comes roaring back. Yes, that's right. And everything changes because this power is back in the world. A couple other uh, differences between the show and the book. Um, Jorah's appearance, like when you close your eyes, do you see Ian Glenn or do you see the, Jorah as the as the the gruff, bald bear in this story? Yeah, I, I lingered over that description of Jorah in the story and thought, yeah, um, well, Ian Glenn didn't have too much hair, and I guess that was that was kind of important here. And it's odd, isn't it? I think, obviously, TV has to make everybody just a little bit better looking than they are in the books. Right. And, um, uh, yeah, I could I could see why you might cast Ian Glenn, because he does have that kind of dependable kind of... Um, he's not a huge guy, yeah. but he's he's he has that kind of presence. I think that that mesh quite well with John. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Danny goes out of the way in the book to describe him as not a handsome man, and you know, Ian Glenn is clearly a handsome man. So, yeah, I think I I, I give him that. Yeah, <laughs> but yep. then you know, Cole Drogo. I I cannot see anybody but Jason Momoa uh-huh. as Cole Drogo. He uh-huh. just is Cole Drogo for me. I think that sure. that was a brilliant piece of casting. <laughs> yeah, and I guess we should probably say something about that move of Danny's at the end, where she takes the sexual initiative for the first time, having yes. had that long yes. talk with Dorea, um, yeah. and. In the show, you have um, Doria, I think, is a bit more explicit in her conversation, but these are women's mysteries that we don't hear anything about <laughs> in in the book chapter, and then she just leads him out into the into the place down by the brook and yes. insists that they make love looking at each other. And, and it's outside. I mean, the, Danny notes... That she's, you know, she's learned enough about Dothraki culture that if this is going to be a significant moment for him, it's got to be done under the sky, right? It's got to be done yeah. outside. And so Danny decides that that's what she's going to do. And she also notes that there are onlookers. There are people watching. But she's grown into sort of her role of nobility enough that she sees like, well, what does it matter that they're looking on? I'm the Khaleesi. Uh, there's almost a class distinction between what what a Khaleesi ought to do in the metaphorical bedroom versus someone else. Yeah, and in some ways, it's it's not exactly the kind of public sex that we saw going on during the wedding feast, which is kind of a mark of of barbarism right um but it it is it does show how she's adjusted to to dothraki ways in that complete privacy for the the sexual act isn't absolutely vital but at the same time um in the in the run-up to this the carl has ordered her to come to his tent at night hasn't he and they've been been having sex in there presumably with at least people who can hear if not necessarily mm. onlookers mm. yeah it's pretty public everything in dothraki culture is not very secretive right 
Yeah, and this is a moment which is it's kind of private because it's negotiating that change in, in their relationship, which is going to turn out to be critical mm. in terms of getting Drogo to see her, to really yeah. see her yeah, as yeah. a person. And it's the, again, a really important stage. Obviously, um, it, in kind of in line with medieval ideas about... Um, how a woman becomes pregnant, how she conceives hmm. that if there's no sexual pleasure, then she won't become pregnant. This is how medieval people thought oh, of it. Orgasm is, is, it. Orgasm is vital for the moment of conception. That's so interesting. I didn't know that. So so there's medieval literature that describes that, that this is crucial for the conception. Yeah, because medieval medical thinking will argue that there's a kind of male seed and a female seed, because obviously nobody knows anything about ovulation. But the female seed is released by by orgasm. And so this is very awkward if a woman has been raped and becomes pregnant, because then the argument is, well, you must have enjoyed it. So it can't have been a rape after all. Oh, no. Um, So that's a whole other question, of course. But... um, Although in, from a kind of medieval perspective and from, I imagine, the perspective of the Dothraki, that did the trick, that, that huh. moment of, of pleasure, the beginning of, the, of, of taking sexual pleasure. Not, not that she hasn't always had some pleasure before, because sometimes after she's, she's got over the, the soreness from the riding, when she cried out when she was making love with yeah. Drogo, after that, it wasn't always in pain, we're, right. we're told. But at this point, I think um, that incredibly intimate moment where she and Drogo are looking each other in the eye, it's the beginning of her sexual, I don't want to say domination over him, but her real sexual power over him, which is then compounded by her maternity. The yes. fact that she's she's bearing the stallion who will mount the world, as it, it turns out. And if you like, it's the beginning of Drogo's tragedy. Hmm. Say more about that. Drogo, I think, has uh, had a pretty elastic view of his obligations to Viserys. And particularly when when Viserys has been killed, he, I think, has the idea, you know, a man must keep his word and he will do that eventually. But once he really falls kind of physically in love with Daenerys mm. and mm. accepts her as a person like him and kind of recognises her personhood and she becomes the mother of his child. That's the point at which he he goes from kind of what was really sort of stringing Viserys along into saying, yes, I will do this thing uh, and I will do this thing for her that's interesting. because she has eaten the stallion's heart. And that's the moment, if you like, that is the point where, although he then kind of cements his power by having Viserys killed, hmm. it's the moment at which he's going to make the kinds of decisions later um, after the raid on the Lazarine, which is going to cause right. his blood riders to go. He listens more to her than he does to us. So that that is in, it's very much in keeping with ancient Near Eastern misogyny, or at least the myth of men in power listening to women or their wives. Mm-hmm. That, that it can't, that, that the woman's advice can be your downfall because 
because you know if if you are too attached to women or if you listen too much to women you will become weak like a woman um now i don't know if martin has any of that in mind but oh it, i think so i think but, that's oh such my a gosh, kind of patriarchal it, that, um, yes a patriarchal mindset isn't it and you can see i'm i'm not saying that martin endorses it but you can see that pattern in a patriarchal society like the, the Dothraki. You know, just over the next few chapters in the story, the way in which kind of we're quite pleased for Daenerys that she and Drogo are falling in love with each other. They're getting something like a kind of Western um, loving marriage going on. Hmm. Um, we don't think, and this again is a, is a very kind of medieval pattern, that the man who falls too much in love with his wife begins to forget about his men. Interesting. And it doesn't even have to be about advice. It just has to be, what do I want to be doing with my day? Do I want to be lying around with my wife making love? Or do I want to be out in the field practicing my horsemanship, fighting mm. with my, mm. you know, getting ready for the military stuff, which is my real life. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see that, I think, among the Dothraki just kind of looking or looking at him and going, yeah, this is not such a great development. You know, that's actually man. not too dissimilar from modern masculinity as well. We, 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 we men do that oftentimes with our, when our friends are, uh, you know, fall in love. Uh, you know, th- this has not gone away. This is not. No, gone away. no, absolutely not. No. No, and then you know, the the medieval thinking here, I can think of a, a couple of stories where on the one hand, the knight has just got married and he spends all his time in bed with his wife and the wife gets to sense what the men are thinking mm. and has to try and figure out how she, you know, what is it his best friends are not telling him. Mm. And she ends up kind of weeping over him and, and waking him up because he's sleeping and, and saying... Okay, husband, you know, I have to tell you what what the men are saying. And he is absolutely furious. And um oh. and the rest of the, the romance plays out with him having to recuperate his lost masculinity and kind of punishing her for speaking out, which is uh, I find always very annoying. And there's a companion romance to that where again the knights just got married, and um Sir Gawain is there at the wedding and says, Okay, look, we've had about a week of partying here. Um, are you gonna come off with me and we're gonna go and do some tournaments and you know, do some nightly <laughs> yeah. stuff? And uh Ivan, who is the the hero of this story, says, Sure, I'll I'll just explain to my wife. And his wife says, Yeah, but be be clear, you better be back here by midsummer. Mm. And he says, Yeah, 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 no problem. So off he and Gawain go. And time passes and time passes and suddenly it's the middle of August and a messenger turns up at King Arthur's court from Ivan's wife bearing a ring and saying, my my lady greets all of you except that false knight Ivan and she never wants to see him again. <laughs> and he's going, oh my God, yeah, I can't. Uh, to be fair to him, he had that morning actually just before the messenger turned up gone, was there something I forgot? To, oh, no, wait, I forgot to go back to my wife. Oh, no, that's not good. But, yeah, still. And then everything, then he goes mad. And then he has a long journey of recuperation as well. So these these two romances are both very interested in how you negotiate this growing idea that the marriage should be about heterosexual love 
and not just a, a matter of alliance mm. and, and mm. breathing. But how do you square that with having a life in the world with your, your male friends? It's always so complicated. It's a, a, a question that doesn't go away, as you say. <laughs> Caroline, this has been delightful. I'm so glad you agreed to, to do this. It, it's, been, it's been so much fun to revisit this chapter. I forgot how important this chapter was until I reread it. It really is a great chapter, isn't it? I looked at the other two you suggested, both of which have got amazing things going on. But I thought, no, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, it really is. It's really important. Yeah, and this is such great fun. I really enjoyed that that opportunity to just dig back into into a chapter. It's not like, let's talk about the whole of the book, but just that particular moment. This is a really interesting and and kind of productive way of of dealing with it. Yeah, let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now Steve and I talk about, and now his watch is ended. Boy, this is an action-packed episode. This is the episode where there's a mutiny at Craster's Keep, and Sam flees with Gilly and her newborn son, and uh, there's a trial by combat between Thoros and the Hound, and then Danny does the full-on burn the masters thing after she takes the unsullied by subterfuge. This is quite the episode. Okay, here is comic Steve Osborne. Steve, what does happen when the non-existent bumps against the decrepit? <laughs> Man, it's like talking to my dad. <laughs> I, like I first heard that when I was four. Some good life lessons on the tractor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he'd been drinking early, as per usual. <laughs> This is a very, str- I mean, there's a lot that happens in this episode, but it's a very strong Varus episode. Yeah, it sure is. And I'm a, he, I was already, I was already a fan and, you know, I love me some Varus and uh, Tyrion together and boy, did I get it. Varus, like Varus brings back the wizard. That oh yeah. I, that scene's incredible. <laughs> oh my God. I love that scene. Just, just a, uh, I mean, the performances are great. The tone is great. The, it takes its time, and it's really not a very long scene, but it really and does a great job. You can see Tyrion just getting impatient. Yeah, and that's what I loved about it. It's just like Varys goes full Varys, <laughs> just slows it down, dramatic, and that's the beauty of it because he's talking about patience. 
it's such a well constructed scene because of that. And then the horror on Tyrion's face when he realizes <laughs> what it's so. It's, God, you've had how what? And then he just puts the lid back on. Yeah, it's just back on. Just, just, just yeah. Because then it just shows that there is. It's a great, like maybe you don't just have to be afraid of what I know. It's what I can do with what I know. I mean, just and the scene itself is just. It's so good. It's just such a, it's perfectly balanced to send the message of, that he's trying to send, which is, you know, just wait for it, be patient. The scene is directed with such a, an adept sense of that patience, right? Like it's, the tension is building. Tyrion is just like, just open the box. <laughs> Tyrion's face tells the whole story. He's like impatient. And then he's a little bit incredulous, like, all right, tell me the story. I guess you, you're just hankering to tell me this story. <laughs> and then impatient again, and then the kind of incredulous, like, yeah, I actually want revenge, like literal revenge. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of my thing right now. And then he's just like, he's just slow, like just, <laughs> man, it's, it's the last bit of conditioner that you're trying to get out of the bottle. Uh, what oh, a yeah. wonderful scene. And that's like early, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I could have, you could have finished the episode that way. So yeah, this is a big episode. I mean, there's two major things that happen. And one of them is that Lord Mormont just, he gets himself stabbed to death. Oh yeah. Yeah. Big episode, man. And Danny goes full Dracaris. Oh yeah. She had the upper hand the whole time. And right. these two decrepit men we're underestimating her. Right. And I think that it, it is a really, uh, it's a, it's a good moment too, because it really establishes her following the same sort of, to a certain degree, you know, the same logic that Varys puts out there. Just wait. Yeah. You know? She's I mean, patient. She, she, she could have just come out with yeah. dragons, but like, no, she, she, it, she slow plays it very carefully to put herself in the best possible situation. That's right. And Mormont, uh, Jorah was worried that she would have no army. And then, of course, Barristan wanted her to not have a slave army. And neither one of them wanted her to trade a dragon. Right. And she figures out a solution where she gets to keep her dragon. She gets herself an army. And I think we're supposed to believe at the end that they're no longer a slave army. And so everyone's happy. Right. Did you see that coming? Were you shocked by the uh, the whole Dracarys thing at the end? Not really. I mean, I I knew I I didn't for a second think she's trading a dragon, right? I suspected she knew the the language that was going on, so there was a lot of that. Which, but when it happened, it still was like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah, I don't think I saw it coming, and I don't oh, know yeah. why. I don't know why. I I must have like read past that part in the book or at least i envisioned it differently or maybe it's you know sometimes when you're reading a long book like you'll miss you'll miss something integral and i think that uh, i was pretty taken aback by how that whole thing went down so all right i want to talk about the ethics of what danny does okay i guess i mean i guess the larger issue seems to be Danny, when Danny says a dragon is no slave, the whole premise of this is I'll give you one of my, one of the things I own and you give me one of the things that you own 
And her response is, well, neither of us owned either of these things from the get-go. A dragon's mm-hmm. not a slave, and these people aren't slaves, although she doesn't say the second part. So it doesn't really matter what I do in this deal. You know, she's she's stealing from a thief, I suppose. Right. And on one hand, but on you know, in terms of the ethical side of it, if she truly believes, like if her ethos is, hey, this dragon's not mine to give. Right. Then she can't really even offer it. So on one hand, she was already offering something that she it wasn't about it. her. She had no intention of giving it. She didn't believe she had the opportunity to give it. He led her to believe a few things, and she led him to believe a few things. And so they were both sort of deceiving each other. So that's maybe that's the smaller potatoes. Right. If you look at it from a larger perspective, like, you know, the sin versus sin, who wins if all sin is the same? Okay. Bigger question. She buys a slave army or she steals a slave army or whatever, and then she sets them free in word. Mm -hmm. But they're still following her and still sort of acting the same way. Does she have the power to undo all of the conditioning that they've been subject to? Well, and does she know that, right? I guess that's the other question, right? Does she have the opportunity to have her cake and eat it too? Sure, sure. I can satisfy my own, you know, this is my ethos. At least it's my ethos that I'm saying is the case. I can say, look, I've set you free. If you live your whole life sort of subjugated to masters and then the new master comes along, she can kind of do and say whatever she wants. She's still going to be perceived as such. Right. And on the other hand, she's also got the ability to say, look, I've given you my freedom. You can follow me. You've you've got the freedom. You can follow me if you want. That's the beauty of freedom. I'm going to head this way. Um, But you're free to follow. And then so now you have their obedience in a new way, right? They're conditioned to be obedient. And whatever ability to have gratitude that they have is now pointed directly at her. And I think that that's probably what we what the showrunners want us to think or Martin wants us to think that she's actually having her cake and eating it, too. And so that she's she's actually more clever than either of the men advisors. I think that that's what's going on. And yet I think that I have to kind of disagree that she actually offered them true freedom. I think that I don't know she that doesn't. She I don't think she did. I, I, yeah, I yeah, think yeah. she knew it. But I think that's a more of a moral issue, right? Like, it's really easy to offer something you know you're not going to have to get rid of. Her, their freedom is the same as the dragon. Right. And I she's still going to use them in the way that they've been trained to be used. She's still going to use them as soldiers. It's not like she's taking right. them to, like, some beach to drink pina coladas. Right. Her offer is you can go roam the desert <laughs> or you can continue to be a slave to me. Right. But, nice. but I won't use the word slave. You know, right. That's what I'm giving I mean, you. I, I'm. If you follow me, you're going to have to do all the things that you were basically going to have to do. But you don't have to. That's right. pretty cool, right? I and, think... she, and then she can sleep easy, right? She's like, hey, give them the option. They know what they're signing up for. I mean, she is a bad ass in this episode. Yeah. She walks in. She knows exactly what she's going to do. She knows she's going to murder some fools. Mm-hmm. And she was going out of there with everything. And I think that based on the previous episode, I think she feels motivated by the whole slavery thing. Like she's she's sort of moved by the guy at the crucifix. She's moved Mm -hmm. by Missandei's condition. She kind of looks up the the children wearing the collars. And I think that she convinces herself 
well, I'm going to tear this entire institution to the ground and I'm going to have to kill a few masters to make that happen. From one perspective, I think she's I think she's come by her tyranny honestly, if if I could say that. And at the same time, I don't know that she actually is self-aware enough to know that she actually is still leading the slave army. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about this whole business at Craster's Keep. Yeah. I guess this guy Rast is instigating and, you know, he maybe he's got this plan to kill Craster and raid his larder. But then this other guy, I guess his name is Carl, um, <laughs> which is, you know, you throw enough weird names out there, you're going to have to name one of these guys Carl. Well, and then you got to figure in that land, they're like, Carl, what kind of a name is that? <laughs> Yeah, Carl's sort of the cube-shaped wombat poop of names. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> All right. So here's what the show doesn't really explain about that episode, which is actually a really crucial episode in the book. So there's something called guest right, Steve. And okay. guest right is actually a taboo in in a lot of different ancient cultures that Martin borrows for these books. And the basic idea is that if you have a guest under your roof and you feed the guest, it's... They can't kill you with an axe. Yes. It would be taboo for the host to murder the guest, and it would also be taboo for the guest to murder the host. And the way that this is reinforced is that the gods are going to get you if that happens. Gotcha. That's why it's, you know, there's a lot of murder in this show, but if you think about it, there should be a lot more murder in this show. I mean, Craster is in a very vulnerable position. All, you know, every single one of these men of the night's walks, they all have swords. Yeah. And yet he's got all the power in this house. And the reason why this is so is that there's this taboo called guest right. And if you offer a guest bread and salt, then you're not allowed to kill him. <laughs> that's that's the rule. Seems fair, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so I think in the books, this is a really big deal. And so I think what happens here is that these men of the Night's Watch decide, screw decorum, we're not superstitious, let's kill the old man. And in the world of the show, you would expect something horrible to happen to someone who violates guest right. It does make sense, though. I mean, like, there is a point where you're just like, dude, it's one dude. Yeah, right. Just, just has some. Just do it. So yeah, there has one to be, dude. This he's is, a horrible dude, right? Yeah. Well, so it's, it totally falls. I mean, this is sort of in that same like rules of magic. This is the, the Game of Thrones. This is the well, it's world know, building, if you, right? If you've read the, if you like, I said, if you read read underneath the lid of the box, you would know these things. Yeah, it's world building. It's sort of like why why are people motivated the way that they are? If you do enough world building, you don't have to explain every little motivation of every character. It just makes sense within the world that a particular character will act this way. Right. Right. So it makes more sense for Jamie to be suicidal in that world than, let's say, our world. Right. Right. Because he can learn to text with his other thumb in our world. For sure. But it's not easy being the greatest swordsman in the realm with one hand. With your hand hanging around your neck. It's just stinky, man. Gosh, that's the thing. The whole time like this is not, I mean, to know, like there are, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there are days where I'll like, I'll smell my hand. 
And I'd be like, geez, what, what, where had that been? Okay. Just like, what, like, I've been keeping track of, of <laughs> where my hand is for the most part. Like, why does this one smell like this? Like, oh my gosh. It smelled like, like, uh, like burnt hair the other day. <laughs> the whole time, I'm like, where is that coming from? I've got a question for you about horse piss, Steve. Oh, good. So, why does it take so long to recognize? Why does thing? it take so long? Do you think that it just tastes like water, but it has a really bad aftertaste? I don't know. I mean, maybe that if the horse is is like eating clean, like doing the whole thirty or something, maybe the urine just comes out so pure. <laughs> What do you call it? You, you've been in the wine industry a while. What do you call the after aroma of a wine? Uh, so that'd be the finish. The finish. So with the horse piss, maybe it's the finish that right. really does all of the dirty work. <laughs> exactly. It's that, that up front, you know, it's pretty clean, pretty crisp, refreshing. And then at the end, you're like, oh, man. I like a very subtle finish, to be honest, Steve. <laughs> Your horse piss? Yeah, I do too. I don't like it to be overpowering. <laughs> It's better as a mixer, I'll be honest. I want to check in with you on the Brianna meter. Is it going up? Yeah, it's going up. I mean, it's interesting, too, because it's like there definitely is this sense of like she feels less stilted now that she's which now I'm like, well, is was the stiltedness part of part of the character where it was like because she's having to compensate for the fact that she's a woman in a man's role that maybe she was as a character performing. Mm hmm. So. Well, my guess, here's how I would explain it. I think that she's got this ideal of knighthood and she's trying to sort of put on this unrealistic persona because that's what she thinks a knight would do or act like mm -hmm. or whatever. So I think that that's how I would take it. Although it's hard not to be a little bit critical of the performance after you planted that seed in my mind. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like what you're doing with Littlefinger for me, right? Like, I mean, your disdain for the performance, it's it's been hard to shake. And, and I'm like, I think that's what, well, maybe not. He is a sassy Cameron Fry from Ferris Bueller. Or maybe that's just his thing. <laughs> All right. So the Brion meter is going up. That's good. Let's check in with Joffrey here. I, I had a problem with this performance as well, Steve. Okay. This particular one, not in general. I like Joffrey's performance in general. It's hard not to like a man that as charming as Joffrey is. <laughs> but in this one, they go outside and they start waving to the crowds. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like he has to like look at her to see how to wave. Like he's never waved before. Uh-huh. He he looks at her, he's like, What is this strange gesture yeah. you're making? I guess I could try to mimic it and see what happens. <laughs> Like the the boy has just never waved in his life. And you found that unbelievable. I found that very unbelievable. I thought, surely you know how to wave. I mean, I, I understand you've got problems. <laughs> but surely you've learned to wave by now. That was just a little nitpick, but I, I thought I would thought I would register my discontent. Maybe he waves with the back of his hand normally, and so this was a big deal. He's not the sharpest sword in the sheet. No, uh, no. Yeah. Oh, one more thing I forgot to mention. I thought it was when um, Rast calls out to um, Sam and calls him Piggy. Do mm -hmm. you think that's oh, a, yeah. a little Lord of the Flies homage? That's what I felt, yeah. Because basically felt. The, this guy's basically went Lord of the Flies. Yeah, they all just went. went. Yeah, all they the, went 
super rogue yeah all authorities like it, it they it's like they created the scenario right as opposed to being thrust into the situation right yeah Get and you have literally the like the the father figures are gone now and total chaos to- yeah total chaos so i i thought that little piggy you know, I'm gonna come get you, Piggy. I'm gonna slip your throat. I I sniffed a little bit of Lord of the Flies. Yeah, I I agree. Um, Theon has a little bit of a of a journey. He's having a hard time. <laughs> Things, yeah, some of it by his own uh, uh, creation, I would say. Theon's another one of these characters where you think he's gonna wise up. Yeah, and then he just. It's like he's like a dog that has been kicked and that, you know, he might bite at you because he's been kicked in the past. But, uh, you know, just just wounded at the core. Yeah. Well, he has this this big moment where he's, you know, showing regret for, you know, and realizing he made a mistake, not choosing the Starks. And then he just gets led right, right back to the drill. Talk about this guy doesn't just like torture. This guy is like. He's into psychological torture. Yeah. Like, it's not enough just to put a drill in his foot. He's got to, like, drill down into his, deep into his core and just ruin him as a person. Just to get, like, get his hopes up. Great, got the hopes up. Cool. All right, now he's had this moment of, like, uh, of clarity, and he's just, like, good to go through the whole thing and to have, like, that, you re- you verbalize it, so now you feel you've been set free emotionally, and it's like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to keep drilling up. That's cool. So this kid that's sort of leading him around by the nose? Is this the guy? Is this the bastard son? This is the guy, of course. Right on, okay. I think it was a couple episodes back where, when uh, Ramsey's about to kill that guy who was going to rape Theon, mm-hmm. like right before he dies, he says, you bastard. Right. Right. And so that's sort of, it's sort of a wink and a nod. And of course, like you, if you're paying attention, you probably guessed already that this is Ramsey. Yeah. But the, well, they, <laughs> his family likes to flay. <laughs> it's kind of like, like the, Wel- the Welch's family is like, nah, we like the juice things. I think we should do a dismemberment count. Okay. So Ned's head, right? That certainly counts. I would think. Jamie's hand. Do we count Varys's stuff? I think we got to count Varys's stuff. Varys's Even junk. It was a pre-existing condition for us, but That's it's right. it. But it's uh, but its legacy lives on. And you got to imagine that that wizard is not going. to not gonna do well no well and the thing is is that we would you would think you'd be able to count Tyrion's nose but it didn't happen like you said that was a a book no but Tyrion did during that battle chop off some guy's leg oh he certainly did the mountain chopped a guy in half I don't think that that actually qualifies as dismemberment (laughs) because if you if like Darth Maul I don't think you'd think of Darth Maul as someone who's been dismembered Darth Maul mm. just got chopped in half. It's true, but then he does come back in uh, in other uh, versions of, uh, I, of of the canon, so he's able to have a, a like he has huh. like mechanical legs. So, because huh. when I think of like dismemberment, I think of you, you've got a member, right? Mm. And the member has been severed. 
I wouldn't think of my bottom half as a member. Well, when Darth Ball comes back, does he come back as the top half or the bottom half? Top half. Okay. <laughs> That'd be amazing, though, if the bottom half was all right, but then there was like a robot on top. <laughs> We're about 10 weeks out from House of the Dragon Season 2, and it's time to prepare for war. Which in our case means, well, watching a lot of Hot D and reading a lot of Fire and Blood. Each week between now and June 16th, Maester Anthony and his co-host Steve are hosting a watch of each episode of Hot D Season 1. And then me and Jim are going to host a discussion of the differences between the events on that episode and how they're recounted in George R.R. Martin's historical tome, Fire and Blood. That's right, I've resorted to reading dragon books. God help us all. We'll see if my fresh eyes add any new insights or predictions into season two. Arm yourselves with all the lore you can for the battles ahead. House of the Dragon returns June 16th, but we've got you covered until then. Check out all of our upcoming Hot D coverage on the Hot D feed or on Bald Move Pulp, available wherever you listen to podcasts. try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. But some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them, or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I want to talk about the reality of maternal mortality. That being that child brides often will give birth in certain cultures much younger than we would deem acceptable in our culture. And for this, I'd like to read an email that I got from kind of a friend of mine by way of email correspondence. And this is what she says. She says, The fact that Danny is 13 in the books bothers us in our modern culture because of an arbitrary age we place on adulthood. Not so long ago in this country, the legal age of consent was 14 in some places. Yes, I think Gurm was messing with our heads with the ages of the children. True, innocent childhood is a concept of the mid-1800s forward, as I've read. Before those concepts became widely popular, children worked. Royal, or highborn children, learned about ruling, but also learned about martial arts, womanly arts, etc. She puts womanly in scare quotes here. Gurm has forced us to contemplate the difference between preserving some semblance of innocence in our modern view and how the world actually worked at one time. I'm guessing here, but generally, wouldn't a female be most healthy shortly after her first menstruation? As so many women died due to the complications from childbirth, actually having sex near to that point of maturity as possible would increase your chances for surviving. Then again, that could be completely wrong, but hey, it sounds plausible. Okay, So this is wrong, and I totally appreciate this email because 
Uh, you know, this is how we have conversations. This is how we disagree about things. The emailer says, this sounds plausible to me, but I could be completely wrong. And, you know, this is a bright emailer. She's right most of the time. In this case, she's wrong. And I'll tell you why. So I've learned through my study of medieval history, but also some of my work in the world, a girl having a baby at 13 is actually a medical risk for her. In a previous life, I worked as a x-ray technician in a rural hospital in Zimbabwe. It wasn't common, but every now and again, we would have a younger woman come in, and the risks were always higher for those women. You know, they've had their menstruation. They can technically, they can get birth. They were very healthy, uh, but the risks were higher. But I don't just want to go from my memory. I'm not a medical expert. Here's what the World Health Organization says about this. I'm looking at their website. It says young adolescents ages 10 to 14 face a higher risk of complications and death as a result of pregnancy than other women. So while common sense, and this may be the case in the Middle Ages too, while common sense might suggest to us, hey, you got to get those uh, girls pregnant early because they're the most healthy and they'll have the best chance to survive. That's not actually the way it works. That's not actually the way it works. This isn't just modern hubris judging an earlier culture. or This isn't just Western culture judging other cultures. These are medical facts. A 13-year-old girl should not be forced to be pregnant. That, of course, is obvious. What also ought to be obvious is that this shouldn't be justified by common sense that does not bear out in the medical facts. Finally, I want to let you know that I made sure that I got the emailer's permission to do this bird's eye view. She gave the sign off on it. I want you to know that if you email me at book at baldmove.com, I'm not going to just publish your email without your permission. If you are enjoying Electric Boogaloo, please rate and review on iTunes. Share this episode with a friend. If you're interested in anything that I've written, ladonbooks.com. That's L-E-D-O-N-N-E, books.com. 